Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to Oral Delights, show 147. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Then and Now show on Oral Delights. We take one of the great writers from the past and match them up with one of the great writers of today, one of the brand new hot writers, and see which story you like. Last month, there wasn't one because we had to skip the show. I'll give you a little heads up. The winner of the the month before, which was Philip Gear Dick against Juliet Wade. The winner was... Philip K. Dick, 65% went for Philip K. Dick and 35% went for Juliet Wade. And actually, the amount of emails and the amount of noise on the forums, it looked like most people didn't like the Philip K. Dick, you know, who kind of stood up and, you know, had a voice. But there's the, there's the results. Philip K.'s Dick, 65%. Give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. We have a story by Philip Jose Farmer, and it goes up against a story by Fabio Fernandez. We've also got a little interview with Fabio as well, just a little, give you a little idea of what's going on in the story and what's up with Fabio. And I have an interview coming up before all that. I have a little 10-minute interview with Mary Robinette Quowell. She's got a new book out called Shades of Milk and Honey, and I just thought it'd be nice to have a little quick chat with Mary and share that with yous. So that is Oral Delights, show 147. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. First off, I had a little chat with Mary Robinette Cowell. So I have Mary online. Mary, nice of you to come on board. 
Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it's lovely, yes. Now, Mary, you've got a new book out. Tell us about it. Yes, it's called Shades of Milk and Honey, and it's coming out from Tor, um, and it's basically Jane Austen with magic. Now, I've heard, because I've I see, I seen actually a lovely post on Boeing, and I was just it what captured us was, you know, this Regency drawing room romance. So, is it... Mm-hmm. Is it more pointing down towards a, a romance novel, or is it? You know, I know it's got shades of element uh, of magic. Sorry, or is it more to do with the kind of the magic and the the fantasy side? Well, it's interesting because one of the things that was that's actually a hard question for me because one of the things that I was wanting to do with this specifically was to write a small scale fantasy. The fact that it's a romance um, is pretty much because of the time period that I set it in and because I kept the scale very small. I I wanted to write a book which was not about people trying to save the world. But if you're writing about women in 1814, the thing that is most important in their life is whether or not they're going to get married because that, based on the social restrictions of the time, would make or break their lives. That was the beyond and Eldor, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It it is you know in some ways a life and death scenario for them, but not there's you know there's not um, it's not like there's a dark overlord that's going to destroy the entire universe. Now this is I'm a writing thing. This is your first novel. That is correct. Yes. So what's it like from because everyone knows you you know especially on my show from the short stories. What's it like? taking that to like a step further and going into the novel was it a big a step up well it's it's actually not i shouldn't say that it it is my first novel it's my debut novel but it's actually the fourth novel that i've written um it is different than writing short stories in terms of details and the way that one structures the plot there's a lot more room for subplots and, and you can explore the characters a great deal more than you can in a short story. But on a line-by-line basis within an individual scene, to me, it did not feel significantly different than writing a short story. In fact, I tended to think of the scenes as being individual short stories in themselves and that there's a beginning, middle, and an end and that there's something within each scene that my character wants. Um, and so that those smaller needs and wants, which are short story length, propelled me through the larger need and want, which is the novel length, if that makes any sense at all. Where do you, where do you pull this from in your mind? Did you do a lot of research for this kind of book? I did. <laughs> I had actually been reading uh, Persuasion by Jane Austen and thinking about how much I loved it and, and why there weren't any small-scale intimate dramas in fantasy, I mean, there there are a few, but they're they're very they're very very few of them. We tend to go more for the epic, and I wanted to I wanted to focus in on characters and and really just look at people and and how magic would inter- interact with someone's life, you know, someone who's not trying to save the world. But being set in eighteen fourteen, uh, people are are very devoted to Miss Austen, so I had to do a lot of research, and and there are mistakes in the book. Um, Actually, in chapter one, and I didn't notice this until I was recording the audiobook, in chapter one, I have a character say hello. And that's not a word that exists yet. 
<laughs> How do you find out something? <laughs> well, that's far Well, back. a lot of them you find out when people read it um, after it's published and let you know in no uncertain terms that uh, you've made an error. But most of it is just doing a lot of research. Uh, and I do, I do what I call big picture research and then spot research. So big picture research would just be reading a lot about the time to get a feel for it. And then spot research would be things like um, there's a dinner party and I needed to know the order of precedence. And I know that there's an order of precedence because I've done the big picture research. But sitting down and looking up and seeing who would precede whom and what that means about who would be sitting next to whom is spot research. It becomes harder when you get down to individual words. Um, Some of them are are obvious, like I I had to look and see if – you know, straight as a rail would be uh, be a, a a phrase that I could use. It was not. Um, uh, Yoo-hoo, also not. But those are things where the, the word choices are things where it's much easier to slip because, of course, I'm using words that are natural to me and no matter how much I get into the rhythms or try to get into that, there's going to be words like that that are that are anachronisms, like you know, hello. <laughs> you would uh, you would think great. hello would be just a natural word yeah. to be in there, wouldn't you? You would. Yeah, but it really it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't really take off in the vocabulary until the telephone. Prior to that, you would you'd be in the same time with someone and. In, in, in their physical presence. So you would say, good morning, good evening, good afternoon. How do you do any of those? You didn't need a word to announce yourself unless you were at a distance for someone. So halu exists, but it's something that you use in hunting, mostly to call dogs. Uh, it's also uh, an expression of surprise or something that you say to catch someone's attention when you're outdoors. Hello doesn't show up until 1830. And it, it again. You've done so much research, haven't you, trying to find all this out? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the funny thing about hello is that I actually did catch it, um, and I, I rooted it out of the entire novel and missed one uh, in the first chapter, which was just maddening. And I don't even remember why I started looking to see if hello was actually a word. I can't remember if I ran across something that made me go, hang on, I should double check that. Um, or if it was just one of those, those things. There's, one, there's another mistake that I made that um, I was like, really? That I didn't know until a reviewer pointed it out, uh, which is that I have someone lift their glass in a toast. Right, that's and another one, is it? Yeah, yeah. Apparently, as a lady, that does not happen until 1847. Um, and to a certain degree with that one, I'm like, eh, you know, she's eccentric. She can, she can do her own thing. Um, other things bother me when I get them wrong. Some of them I'm like, well, we can make allowances. Not everybody had the same fashion at the same time. That's just the first time it was recorded that someone did it. <laughs> what about, again, for research, it's set in the Dorset area, the Dorset countryside of England. Yes. Is that, again, just down to research, is it? Or have you, came, have you come over and had a little look around? Actually, I have gone over and, and had a little look around, uh, but that was for a different purpose. I was researching a uh, puppet show 
uh, shades, not shades of milk and honey. I'm totally fixated on that, obviously, right now. Um, but I had been researching a show about Mary Anning, uh, who is a native of Lyme Regis, and a number of her papers are in the Dorset Library. So we uh, we went over and spent quite a bit of time there. It's convenient because a lot of Jane Austen's work is set in Bath and and in the south of England. So the fact that the only area outside of London that I was familiar with was also where the book needed to be set was very helpful. <laughs> what I am interested in is the mother. Now, I don't know, like, see, I haven't read the novel, but I'm just mm-hmm. picking up off some of the, like, the, the, the reviews I've seen. What's the mother like? Because I, the way I'm, I'm reading it in on the Boeing, is she a bit of a, like, a, a nasty kind of... <laughs> she's, uh, she's actually just completely flighty and a hypochondriac. So, um, Jane Austen frequently did this to her mother figures, actually, where they are, um, they're not, the one she most closely relates to is, um, is the mother in Sense and Sensibility, excuse me, not Sense and Sensibility, in Pride and Prejudice, um, which is so fixed on social advantage and getting the girls married off. Um, this one is a hypochondriac. So every little thing bothers her. At one point, she says, um, you know, that the doctor has told her that no matter what he does, her nerves will never be well. And she takes this as a sign, of course, that she's greatly afflicted. And of course, what he means is, ma'am, you're just crazy. <laughs> in 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 this story as well, there's there's magic in there as well. Is the magic, like I say, I'm just reading off the reviews again, is it just mild magic that, or is there sometimes, and I, not to give the plot away, is there times where, you know, there is like an evil overlord that's got loads of magic power, or does like the big strong magic not come into it, it's just like, you're mild? No, I, I, it, that was actually the hardest thing about this, uh, was constructing a magic system that would not break history. Um because if there's big, strong magic, there's a lot of historical things that would just go down very different ways. So this is almost entirely illusionary. Um, and it's it, the, the way I think of it is, is like painting. That There are some people who are very good at painting and who can do amazing things with it. And there, there are, in fact, ways that painting can be used in warfare for camouflage. But for the most part, painting is decorative. Glamour is much the same way. Although you can manipulate light, it's, it's, you're manipulating the illusion of light. So I can make it look like there's a sunbeam going across the wall. But if you actually stick a book in it, it's not significantly brighter than, say, if you stick a book in, into the projection of a film of a sunbeam. It's never as bright as the actual sun. And I had to do that because if I didn't, candlelight would not have come in. No, why would you invent artificial light if you can create it? There was a lot of there was a lot of that. It's like, well, if I have this, how would it be used? Um, and and I had to. There there are some things that I had to place heavy heavy restrictions on. Some of it doesn't show up on the page, and and some of it you it shows up in the sequel. You know, like why there's you know what what a particular heavy restriction is. You know, it's difficult when you're when you're writing a novel, and there's a heavy restriction on one aspect, but it's it's not it's not an area that your book deals with. So you kind of it's like, well, why would I explain that you can't do this? 
Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and you, you just mentioned there, sequel. So there's going to be a sequel. You're writing that now? Um, actually, just turned in revisions. The sequel is called Glamour and Glass, and it takes place in 1815 uh, in Belgium, which um, was actually more nerve-wracking to write than this one because, of course, 1815 Belgium is leading up to Waterloo. And if you think the fans of Miss Austen are... Um, Severe critics of historical inaccuracies, wait until you meet the Napoleonic buffs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that is scheduled to come out in 2011. Mary, is Shades Milk and Honey out now, is it? Is it or is it still a few few days to, to go? Um, it comes out tomorrow, August 3rd. August 3rd. So, and, yeah, and and there's actually a few bookstores where it's already out, and and I've seen people telling me, oh, Amazon just told me they're shipping it. So, is it paperback or hardback? It's coming out. It's hardback, audiobook, and electronic, and it should be available in pretty much any electronic format you want. Well, well, Mary, that's it's lovely to know. I'm wishing you all luck with this. Your first novel, big, you know. Hopefully, big things will happen. Thank you, thank you so much. I'm uh, I'm very excited. <laughs> oh well, it, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to it. And hopefully, like I say, it'll it'll make some waves there as well for you. That'll be lovely. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you for you so coming much. on Starship Sofa. It was really kind. It was my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Mary. Take good care. You too. There you go. I will put a link on to Mary's site. Do pop over there, and I'll put a link on to the book as well, so you can go and purchase that over at Amazon. So this is Then and Now, one of the great writers up against one of the new hot daddies on the field. We have Philip Jose Farmer, born in 1918, he died in 2009, American author, particularly known for science fiction, fantasy novels and short stories. Actually, way back in the past, way back, you know, five years, something like that. We, one of the original Starship Sofa shows, <laughs> did, a, I think it was a two-parter on Philip Jose Farmer as well. Best known for his World of Tears and the Riverworld books he had out. This story came out in 1954 and it is narrated by Mike Boris. Mike Boris has done a load for Starship Sofa, really proud of Mike's work. And go over to Mike Boris's site. You'll see now he actually does audio narrations and advertising in the audio format. Please pop over there. I'll put a link on the site. Mike, thank you so much, sir. So the Starship Sova and her oral delight is very proud to present. They Twinkled Like Jewels by Philip Jose Farmer. Narrated by Mike Boris. Crane didn't get the nice man's name until it was far too late to do anything at all about it. Jack Crane lay all morning in the vacant lot. Now and then he moved a little to quiet the protest of cramped muscles and stagnant blood, but most of the time he was as motionless as the heap of rags he resembled. Not once did he hear or see a Bohas agent, or for that matter, anyone. The pre-dawn darkness had hidden his panting flight from the transy jungle, his dodging across backyards while whistles shrilled and voices shouted, and his crawling on hands and knees down an alley into the high grass and bushes which fringed a hidden garden. For a while his heart had knocked so loudly that he had been sure he would not be able to hear his pursuers if they did get close. It seemed inevitable that they would track him down. 
A buddy had told him that a new camp had just been built at a place only three hours' drive away from the town. This meant that Bohas would be as thick as hornets in the neighborhood. But no black uniforms had so far appeared. And then lying there, while the passionate and untiring sun mounted the sky, the bang-bang of his heart was replaced by a noiseless but painful movement in his stomach. He munched a candy bar and two dried rolls which a housewife had given him the evening before. The tiger in his belly quit pacing back and forth. It crouched and licked its chops, but its tail was stuck up in his throat. Jack could feel the dry fur swabbing his pharynx and mouth. He suffered, but he was used to that. Night would come as surely as anything did. He'd get a drink then to quench his thirst. Boredom began to sit on his eyelids. Just as he was about to accept some much-needed sleep, he moved a leaf with an accidental jerk of his hand and uncovered a caterpillar. It was dark except for a row of yellow spots along the central line of some of its segments. As soon as it was exposed, it began slowly shimmying away. Before it had gone two feet, it was crossed by a moving shadow. Guiding the shadow was a black wasp with an orange ring around the abdomen. It closed the gap between itself and the worm with a swift, smooth movement and straddled the dark body. Before the wasp could grasp the thick neck with its mandibles, the intended victim began rapidly rolling and unrolling and flinging itself from side to side. For a minute, the delicate dancer above it could not succeed in clenching the neck. Its sharp jaws slid off the frenzied, jerking skin until the tiring creature paused for a chip of a second. Seizing opportunity in larva at the same time, the wasp stood high on its legs and pulled the worm's front end from the ground, exposing the yellowed band of the underpart. The attacker's abdomen curved beneath its own body, yet a stinger jabbed between two segments of the prey's jointed length. Instantly, the writhing stilled. A shudder, and the caterpillar became as inert as if it were dead. Jack watched with an eye not completely clinical, feeling the sympathy of the hunted and the hounded for a fellow. His own struggles of the past few months had been as desperate, though not as hopeless, and... He stopped thinking. His heart again took up the rib-thudding. Out of the corner of his left eye, he had seen a shadow that fell across the garden. When he slowly turned his head to follow the stain upon the sun-splashed soil, he saw that it clung to a pair of shining black boots. Jack did not say anything. What was the use? He put his hands against the weeds and pushed his body up. He looked into the silent mouth of a thirty-eight automatic. It told him his running days were over. He didn't talk back to a mouth like that. 2. Jack was lucky. As one of the last to be herded into the truck, which had once been used for hauling cattle, he had more room to breathe than most of the others. He faced the rear bars. The vehicle was heading into the sun. Its rays were not as hard on him as on some of those who were jam-packed so they could not turn to get the hot yellow splotch out of their eyes. He looked through lowered lids at the youths on either side of him. For the last three days in the transy jungle, the one standing on his left had given signs of what was coming upon him, what had come upon so many of the transies. The muttering, the indifference to food, not hearing you when you talked to him. And now the shock of being caught in the raid had speeded up what everybody had foreseen. He was hardened, like a concrete statue into a half-crouch. His arms were held in front of him like a praying mantis's and his hands clutched a bar. Not even the pressure of the crowd could break his posture. The man on Jack's right murmured something, 
but the roaring of the motor and clashing of gears shifted on a hill squashed his voice. He spoke louder. Surea flexibilitas. Extreme catatonic state. The fate of all of us. You're nuts, said Jack. Not me. I'm no schizo, and I'm not going to become one. As there was no reply, Jack decided he had not moved his lips enough to be heard clearly. Lately, even when it was quiet, people seemed to have trouble making out what he was saying. It made him mildly angry. He shouted. It did not matter if he were overheard. That any of the prisoners were agents of the Bureau of Health and Sanity didn't seem likely. Anyway, he didn't care. They wouldn't do anything to him. They hadn't planned before this. Got any idea where we're going? Sure. FMRC 3. Federal Mail Rehabilitation Camp Number 3. I spent two weeks in the hills spying on it. Jack looked the speaker over. Like all those in the truck, he wore a frayed shirt, a stained and torn coat, and greasy, dirty trousers. The black bristles on his face were long. The back of his neck was covered by thick curls. The brim of his dusty hat was pulled down low. Beneath its shadow, his eyes roamed from side to side with the same fear that Jack knew was in his own eyes. Hunger and sleepless nights had knobbed his cheekbones and honed his chin to a sharp point. An almost visible air clung to him, a hot aura that seemed to result from veins full of lava and eyeballs spilling out a heat that could not be held within him. He had the face every trans he had, the face of a man who was either burning with fever or who had seen a vision. Jack looked away to stare miserably at the dust boiling up behind the wheels, as if he could see projected against its yellow-brown screen his retreating past. He spoke out of the side of his mouth. What's happened to us? We should be happy and working at good jobs and sure about the future. We shouldn't be just bums, hobos, walkers of the street, rod hoppers, beggars, and thieves. His friend shrugged and looked uneasily from the corners of his eyes. He was probably expecting the question they all asked sooner or later. Why are you on the road? They asked, but none replied with words that meant anything. They lied, and they didn't seem to take any pleasure in their lying. When they asked questions themselves, they knew they wouldn't get the truth. But something forced them to keep on trying anyway. Jack's buddy evaded also. He said, I read a magazine article by a Dr. Vespa, the head of the Bureau of Health and Sanity. He'd written the article just after the president created the Bureau. He viewed... Quote, with alarm and apprehension, unquote, the fact that 6% of those between the ages of 12 and 25 were schizophrenics who needed institutionalizing. And he was, quote, appalled and horrified, unquote, that 5% of the nation were homeless, unemployed, and that 3.7% of those were between the ages of 14 and 30. He said that if this schizophrenia kept on progressing, half the world would be in rehabilitation camps. But if that occurred, the sane half would go to pot, back to the Stone Age, and the schizos would die. He licked his lips as if he were tasting the figures and found them bitter. I was very interested by Vespa's reply to a mother who had written him, he went on. Her daughter ended up in a Bohas camp for schizos, and her son had left his wonderful home and brilliant future to become a bum. She wanted to know why. Vespa took six long paragraphs to give six explanations, all equally valid and all advanced by equally distinguished sociologists. He himself favored the mass hysteria theory. But if you looked at his gobbledygook closely, you could reduce it to one phrase. 
We don't know. He did say this, though you won't like it, that the schizos and the transies were just two sides of the same coin. Both were infected with the same disease, whatever it was. And the transies usually ended up as schizos anyway. It just took them longer. Gears shifted. The floor slanted. Jack was shoved hard against the rear boards by the weight of the other men. He didn't answer until the pressure had eased and his ribs were free to work for more than mere survival. He said, You're way off, schizo. My hit in the road has nothing to do with those splitheads. Nothing, you understand? There's nothing foggy or dreamy about me. I wouldn't be here with you guys if I hadn't been so interested in a wasp catching a caterpillar that I never saw the boha sneaking up on me. While Jack described the little tragedy, the other allowed an understanding smile to bend his lips. He seemed engrossed, however, and when Jack had finished, he said, That was probably an Amaphila wasp. Svex unaria klug. Lovely, but vicious little she-demon. Injects the poison from her sting into the caterpillar's central nerve cord. That not only paralyzes, but preserves it. The victim is always stowed away with another one in an underground burrow. The wasp attaches one of her eggs to the body of a worm. When the egg hatches, the grub eats both of the worms. They're alive, but they're completely helpless to resist while their guts are gnawed away. Beautiful idea, isn't it? It's a habit common to many of those little devils. Scalafron cementarium. Eumenes coarcta. Eumenes fraterna. Bembix spinolae. Pelopoeus. Jack's interest wandered. His informant was evidently one of those transies who spent long hours in the libraries. They were ready at the slightest chance to offer their encyclopedic but often useless knowledge. Jack himself had abandoned his childhood bookwormishness. For the last three years, his days and evenings had worn themselves out on the streets, passed in a parade of faces, flickered by in plate-glass windows of restaurants and department stores and business offices, while he hoped, hoped. "'Did you say you spied on the camp?' Jack interrupted the sonorous, almost chanting flow of Greek and Latin. "'Huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for two weeks. I saw plenty of transies trucked in, but I never saw any taken out. Maybe they left in the rocket.' "'Rocket?' The youth was looking straight before him. His face was hard as bone, but his voice trembled. "'Yes, a big one. It landed and discharged about a dozen men.' You nuts! There's been only one man-carrying rocket invented, and it lands by parachute. I saw it, I tell you, and I'm not so nutty I'm seeing things that aren't there. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> Maybe the government's got rockets it's not telling anybody about. Then what connection could there be between rehabilitation camps and rockets? Jack shrugged and said, Your rocket story is fantastic. If somebody had told you four years ago that you'd be a bum hauled off to a concentration camp, you'd have said that was fantastic, too. Jack did not have time to reply. The truck stopped outside a high barbed wire fence. The gate swung open. The truck bounced down the bumpy dirt road. Jack saw some black-uniformed bohas seated by heavy machine guns. They halted at another entrance. More barbed wire was passed. Huge Doberman pincers looked at the transies with cold, steady eyes. The dust off another section of road swirled up before they squeaked to a standstill and the engine turned off. 
This time, agents began to let down the back of the truck. They had to pry the pitiful schizo's fingers loose from the wood with a crowbar and carry him off, still in his half-crouch. A sergeant boomed orders. Stiff and stumbling, the transies jumped off the truck. They were swiftly lined up into squads and marched into the enclosure and from there into huge black barracks. Within an hour, each man was stripped. He had his head shaven, was showered, given a gray uniform, and handed a tin plate and spoon and cup filled with beans and bread and hot coffee. Afterwards, Jack wandered around, free to look at the sandy soil underfoot and barbed wire and the black uniforms of the sentries, and free to ask himself where, 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 where. Twelve years ago it had been, but where, where, where was... Three. How easy it would have been to miss all this, if only he had obeyed his father. But Mr. Crane was so ineffectual. Jackie, he said, would you please go outside and play, or stay in some other room? It's very difficult to discuss business while you're whooping and screaming around, and I have a lot to discuss with Mr. Yes, Daddy, Jack said before his father mentioned his visitor's name. But he was not Jack Crane in this game. He was Uncas. The big chairs and the divan were trees in his imaginative eyes. The huge easy chair in which Daddy's caller, Jack thought of him only as Mr., sat was a fallen log. He, Uncas, meant to hide behind it in ambush. Mr. did not bother him. He had smiled and said in a shrill voice that he thought Jack was a very nice boy. He wore a light gray-green Palm Beach suit and carried a big brown leather briefcase that looked too heavy for his soda-straw-thin legs and arms. He was queer-looking because his waist was so narrow and his back so humped. And when he took off his tan Panama hat, a white fuzz exploded from his scalp. His face was pale as the moon in daylight. His broad smile showed teeth that Jack knew were false. But the queerest thing about him was his thick spectacles, so heavily tinted with rose that Jack could not see the eyes behind them. The afternoon light seemed to bounce off the lenses in such a manner that no matter what angle you looked at them, you could not pierce them. And they curved to hide the sides of his eyes completely. Mr. had explained that he was an albino, and he needed the glasses to dim the glare on his eyes. Jack stopped being Uncas for a minute to listen. He had never seen an albino before, and indeed he did not know what one was. "'I don't mind the youngster,' said Mr. "'Let him play here if he wants to. He's developing his imagination, and he may be finding more stimuli in this front room than he could in all of outdoors.' We should never cripple the fine gift of imagination in the young. Imagination, fancy, fantasy, or whatever you call it, is the essence and mainspring of those scientists, musicians, painters, and poets who amount to something in later life. They are adults who have remained youths. Mr. addressed Jack. You are the last of the Mohicans, and you're about to sneak up on the French captain and tomahawk him, aren't you? Jack blinked. He nodded his head. The opaque rose lenses set in Mr.'s face seemed to open a door into his naked gray skull. The man said, "'I want you to listen to me, Jack. You'll forget my name, which isn't important, but you will always remember me and my visit, won't you?' Jack stared at the impenetrable lenses and nodded dumbly. Mr. turned to Jack's father. "'Let his fancy grow. It's a necessary wish-fulfillment play.' 
Like all human young who are good for anything at all, he is trying to find the lost door to the Garden of Eden. The history of the great poets and men of action is the history of the attempt to return to the realm that Adam lost, the forgotten Hesperides of the mind, the Avalon buried in our soul. Mr. Crane put his fingertips together. Yes? Personally, I think that someday man will realize just what he is searching for and will invent a machine that will enable the child to project, just as a film throws an image on the screen, the vision in his psyche. I see you're interested, he continued. You would be, naturally, since you're a professor of philosophy. Now, let's call the toy a spectroscope, because through it the subject sees the specters that haunt his unconscious. <laughs> But how does it work? If you keep it to yourself, Mr. Crane, I'll tell you something. My native country scientists have developed a rather simple device. Though they haven't published anything about it in the scientific journals, let me give you a brief explanation. Light strikes the retina of the eye. The rods and cones pass on impulses to the bipolar cells, which send them on to the optic nerve, which goes to the brain. Elementary and full of gaps, said Jack's father. Pardon me, said Mr. A bare outline should be enough. You'll be able to fill in the details. Very well. This spectroscope breaks up the light going into the eye in such a manner that the rods and cones receive only a certain wavelength. I can't tell you what it is, except that it's in the visual red. The scope also concentrates like a burning glass and magnifies the power of the light. Result? A hitherto undiscovered chemical in the visual purple of the rods is activated and stimulates the optic nerve in a way we had not guessed possible. An electrochemical stimulus then irritates the subconscious until it fully wakes up. Let me put it this way the subconscious is not a matter of location, but of organization. There are billions of possible connections between the neurons of the cortex. Look at those potentialities as so many cards in the same pack. Shuffle the cards one way, and you have the common workaday cogito ergo sum mind. Reshuffle them, and bingo! You have the combination of neurons, or cards, of the unconscious. The spectroscope does the redealing. When the subject gazes through it, he sees for the first time the full impact and result of his underground mind's workings in other perspectives than dreams or symbolic behavior. The subjective Garden of Eden is resurrected. It is my contention that this spectroscope will someday be available to all children. When that happens, Mr. Crane, you will understand that the world will profit from man's secret wishes. Earth will be a far better place. Paradise, sunken deep in every man, can be dredged out and set up again. <laughs> I don't know, said Jack's father, stroking his chin thoughtfully with a finger. Children like my son are too introverted as it is. Give them this psychological toy, you suggest, and you would watch them grow, not into the outside world, but into themselves. They would fester. Man has been expelled from the garden. His history is a long, painful climb towards something different. It is something that is probably better than the soft and flabby golden age. If man were to return, he would regress, become worse than static, become infantile, or even embryonic. He would be smothered in the folds of his own dreams. Perhaps, said the salesman. But I think you have a very unusual child here. He will go much farther than you may think. Why? 
because he is sensitive and has an imagination that only needs the proper guidance. Too many children become mere bourgeois ciphers with paunches and round O minds full of tripe. They stay on earth, that is, I mean they'll be stuck in the mud. You talk like no insurance salesman I've ever met. Like all those who really want to sell, I'm a born psychologist, Mr. Shrilled. Actually, I have an advantage. I have a Ph.D. in psychology. I would prefer staying at home for laboratory work. But since I can help my starving children, I'm not joking, so much more by coming to a foreign land and working at something that will put food in their mouths, I do it. I can't stand to see my little ones go hungry. Moreover, he said with a wave of his long-fingered hand, this whole planet is really a lab that beats anything within four walls. You spoke of famine. Your accent, your name. You're a Greek, aren't you? In a way, said Mr. My name, translated, means gracious or kindly or well-meaning. His voice became brisker. The translation is apropos. I'm here to do you a service. Now, about those monthly premiums. Jack shook himself and stepped out of the mold of fascination that Mr.'s glasses seemed to have poured around him. Uncas again, he crawled on all fours from chair to divan to stool to the fallen log which the adults thought was an easy chair. He stuck his head from behind it and sighted along the broomstick musket at his father. He'd shoot that white man dead and then take his scalp. He giggled at that, because his father really didn't have any hairlock to take. At that moment, Mr. decided to take off his specs and polish them with his breast-pocket handkerchief. While he answered one of Mr. Crane's questions, he let them dangle from his fingers. Accidentally, the lenses were level with Jack's gaze. One careless glance was enough to jerk his eyes back to them. One glance stunned him so that he could not at once understand that which he was seeing was not reality. There was his father across the room, but it wasn't a room— it was a space outdoors under the low branch of a tree whose trunk was so big it was as wide as the wall had been. Nor was the Persian rug there. It was replaced by a closed-cropped bright green grass. Here and there foot-high flowers with bright yellow petals tipped in scarlet swayed beneath an internal wind. Close to Mr. Crane's feet a white horse, no larger than a fox terrier, bit off the flaming end of a plant. All those things were wonderful enough, but was that naked giant who sprawled upon a moss-covered boulder father? No, yes, though the features were no longer pinched and scored and pale, though they were glowing and tanned and smooth like a young athlete's, they were his father's. Even the thick curly hair that fell down over a wide forehead and the panther-muscled body could not hide his identity. Though it tore at his nerves, and though he was afraid that once he looked away he would never again seize the vision, Jack ripped his gaze away from the rosy view. The descent to the gray and rasping reality was so painful that tears ran down his cheeks, and he gasped as if struck in the pit of the stomach. How could beauty like that be all around him without his knowing it? He felt like he had been blind all his life until this moment, and would be forever eyeless again an unbearable forever if he did not look through the glass again. He stole another hurried glance, and the pain in his heart and stomach went away. His insides became wrapped in a soft wind. He was lifted, he was floating. A pale red velvety air caressed him and buoyed him. He saw his mother run from around the tree. 
That should have seemed peculiar, because he had thought she was dead. But there she was, no longer flat-walking and coughing and thin and wax-skinned, but golden-brown and curvy and bouncy. She jumped at Daddy and gave him a long kiss. Daddy didn't seem to mind that she had no clothes on. Oh, it was so wonderful. Jack was drifting on a yielding and wine-tinted air and warmed with a wind that seemed to swell him out like a happy balloon. Suddenly he was falling, hurtling helplessly and sickeningly through a void while a cold and drab blast gouged his skin and spun him around and around. The world he had always known shoved hard against him. Again he felt the blow in the solar plexus and saw the gray tentacles of the living reality reach for his heart. Jack looked up at the stranger, who was just about to put his spectacles on the bridge of his long nose. His eyelids were closed. Jack never did see the pink eyes. That didn't bother him. He had other things to think about. He crouched beside the chair while his brain tried to move again, tried to engulf a thought, and failed because it could not become fluid enough to find the idea that would move his tongue to shriek, No, no, no! And when the salesman rose and placed his papers in the case and patted Jack on the head and bent his opaque rose spectacles at him and said goodbye and that he wouldn't be coming back because he was going out of town to stay, Jack was not able to move or say a thing. Nor for a long time after the door had closed could he break through the mass that gripped him like hardened lava. By then no amount of screams and weeping would bring Mr. back. All his father could do was to call a doctor who took the boy's temperature and gave him some pills. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Four. Jack stood inside the wire and bent his neck back to watch a huge black and silver oyster feel the dust for a landing field, with its single white foot and its orange toes. Blindingly, lights sprang to attention over the camp. When Jack had blinked his eyes back to normal, he could see over the flat half-mile between the fence and the ship. It lay quiet and glittering and smoking in the floodbeams. He could see the round door and its sides swing open. Men began filing out. A truck rumbled across the plain and pulled up beside the metal bulk. 
a very tall man stepped out of the cab and halted upon the running board, from which he seemed to be greeting the newcomers or giving them instructions. Whatever he was saying took so long that Jack lost interest. Lately he had not been able to focus his mind for any length of time upon anything except that one event in the past. He wandered around and whipped glances at his comrades' faces, noting listlessly that their uniforms and shaved heads had improved their appearance. But nothing would be able to chill the feverishness of their eyes. Whistles shrilled. Jack jumped. His heart beat faster. He felt as if the end of the quest were suddenly close. Somebody would be around the corner. In a minute that person would be facing him, and then... Then he reflected and sagged with a wave of disappointment at the thought. Then there was nobody around the corner. It always happened that way. Besides, there weren't any corners in this camp. He had reached the wall at the end of the alley. Why didn't he stop looking? Sergeants lined the prisoners up four abreast, preparatory to marching them into the barracks. Jack supposed it was time to turn in for the night. He submitted to their barked orders and hard hands without resentment. They seemed a long way off. For the ten thousandth time, he was thinking that this need not have happened. If he had been man enough to grapple with himself, to wrestle as Jacob did with the angel, and not let loose until he had felled the problem, he could be teaching philosophy in a quiet little college, as his father did. He had graduated from high school with only average marks, and then, instead of going to college, as his father had so much wanted him to, he had decided he would work a year. With his earnings, he would see the world. He had seen it, but when his money ran out, he had not returned home. He had drifted, taking jobs here and there, sleeping in flop houses, jungles, park benches, and freight cars. When the newly created Bureau of Health and Sanity had frozen jobs in an effort to solve the transiency problem, Jack had refused to work. He knew that he would not be able to quit a job without being arrested at once. Like hundreds of thousands of other youths, he had begged and stolen and hidden from the local police and the Bohas. Even through all those years of misery and wandering, he had not once admitted to himself the true nature of his fog-cottoned grail. He knew it, and he did not know it. It was patrolling the edge of his mind, circling a far-off periphery, recognizable by a crude silhouette, but nameless. Any time he wanted to, he could have summoned it closer and said, You are it, and I know you, and I know what I am looking for. It is... is what? Worthless? Foolish? Insane? A dream? Jack had never had the courage to take that action. When it seemed the thing was galloping closer, charging down upon him, he ran away. It must stay on the horizon, moving on, always moving, staying out of his grasp. Oh, you guys! Forward! Hutch! Jack did not move. The truck from the rocket had come through the gate and stopped by the transies, and about fifty men were getting off the back. The man behind Jack bumped into him. Jack paid him no attention. He did not move. He squinted at the group who had come from the rocket. They were very tall, hump-shouldered, and dressed in light gray-green Palm Beach suits and tan Panama hats. Each held a brown leather briefcase at the end of a long, thin arm. Each wore on the bridge of his long nose a pair of rose-colored glasses. A cry broke hoarsely from the transies. Some of those in front of Jack fell to their knees, as if a sudden poison had paralyzed their legs. They called names and stretched out open hands. A boy by Jack's side sprawled face down on the sand while he uttered over and over again, Mr. Palopoulos, 
Mr. Palapo is... The name meant nothing to Jack. He did feel repulsed at seeing the fellow turn on his side, bend his neck forward, bring his clenched fists up against his chest, and jackknife his legs against his arms. He had seen it many times before in the transient jungles, but he had never gotten over the sickness it had first caused him. He turned away and came almost nose to nose with one of the men from the rocket. He had put down his briefcase so it rested against his leg and taken a white handkerchief out of his breast pocket to wipe the dust from his lenses. His lids were squeezed shut as if he found the lights unbearable. Jack stared and could not move while a name that the boy behind him had been crying out slowly worked its way through his consciousness. Suddenly, like the roar of a flash flood that is just rounding the bend of a dry gulch, the syllables struck him. He lunged forward and clutched at the spectacles in the man's hand. At the same time, he yelled over and over the words that had filled out the blank in his memory. Mr. Jimenez! Mr. Jimenez! A sergeant cursed and slammed his fist into Jack's face. Jack fell down, flat on his back. Though his jaw felt as if it were torn loose from its hinge, he rolled over on his side, raised himself on his hands and knees, and began to get up to his feet. "'Stand still!' bellowed the sergeant. "'Stay in formation, or you'll get more of the same!' Jack shook his head until it cleared. He crouched and held out his hands toward the man, but he did not move his feet. Over and over, half-chanting, half-crooning, he said, "'Mr. Jimenez, the glasses! Please, Mr. Jimenez, the glasses!' The forty-nine Mr. Yumene, or otherwise, looked incuriously with impenetrable rosy eyes. The fiftieth put the white handkerchief back in his pocket. His mouth opened, false teeth gleamed. With his free hand he took off his hat and waved it at the crowd and bowed. His tilted head showed a white fuzz-like hair that shot up over his pale scalp. His gestures were both comic and terrifying. The hat and the inclination of his body said far more than words could. They said... Goodbye forever, and bon voyage. Then Mr. Jimenez straightened up and opened his lids. At first the sockets looked as if they had no eyeballs, as if they were empty of all but shadows. Jack saw them from a distance. Mr. Jimenez, or his twin, was shooting away faster and faster and becoming smaller and smaller. No, he himself was. He was rocketing away within his own body. He was falling down a deep well, he, Jack Crane, was a hollow shaft down which he slipped and screamed away, away from the world outside. It was like seeing from the wrong end of a pair of binoculars that lengthened and flattened while the man with the long-sought-for treasure in his hand flew in the opposite direction, as if he had been connected to the horizon by a rubber band and someone had released it and he was flying towards it, away from Jack. Even as this happened, as he knew vaguely that his muscles were locking into the posture of a beggar, hands out pleading, face twisted into an agony of asking, lips repeating his croon chant, he saw what had occurred. The realization was like the sudden, blinding, and at the same time clarifying light that sometimes comes to epileptics just as they are going into a seizure. It was the thought that he had kept away on the horizon of his mind, the thought that now charged in on him with long leaps and bounds, and then stopped and sat on its haunches and grinned at him while its long tongue lolled. Of course, he should have known all these years what it was. He should have known that Mr. Jimenez was the worst thing in the world for him. He had known it, but like a drug addict, he had refused to admit it. He had searched for the man, yet he had known it would be fatal to find him. 
the rose-colored spectacles would swing gates that should never be fully open. And he should have guessed what and who Mr. Eumenes was when that encyclopedic fellow in the truck had sing-songed those names. How could he have been so stupid, stupid? It was easy. He had wanted to be stupid. And how could that Mr. Eumenes or otherwise have used such obvious giveaway names? It was a measure of their contempt for the humans around them and of their own grim wit. Look at all the double entendres the salesman had given his father. And his father had never suspected. Even the head of the Bureau of Health and Sanity had been terrifyingly blasé about it. Dr. Vespa. He had thrown his name like a gauntlet to humanity, and humanity had stared idiotically at it and never guessed its meaning. Vespa was a good Italian name. Jack didn't know what it meant, but he supposed that it had the same meaning as the Latin. He remembered it from his high school class. As for not encountering the salesman until now, he had been lucky. If he had run across him during a search, he would have been denied the glasses as now, and the shock would have made him unable to cry out and betray the man. He would have done what he was so helplessly doing at this moment, and he would have been carted off to an institution. How many other transies had seen that unforgettable face on the streets, the end of their search, and gone at once into that state that made them legal prey of the Bohas? That was almost his last rational thought. He could no longer feel his flesh. A thin red curtain was falling between him and his senses. Everywhere it swirled and softened the outlines of things that were streaking by. A large tree that he remembered seeing in his living room. A naked giant, his father, leaning against it and eating an apple. And a delicate little white creature cropping flowers. Yet all this while he lived in two worlds. One was the passage downwards toward the Garden of Eden. The other was that hemisphere in which he had dwelt so reluctantly, the one he now perceived through the thickening red veil of his sight and other senses. They were not yet gone. He could feel the hands of the black-clad officers lifting him up and lying him upon some hard substance that rocked and bumped. Every lurch and thud was only dimly felt. Then he was placed upon something softer and carried into what he vaguely sensed was the interior of one of the barracks. Some time later... He didn't know or care when, for he had lost all conception or even definition of time. He looked up the deep, ever-lengthening shaft of himself into the eye of another Mr. Eumenes, or Mr. Svex, or Dr. Vespa, or whatever he called himself. He was in white and wore a stethoscope around his neck. Beside him stood another of his own kind. This one wore lipstick and a nurse's cap. She carried a tray on which were several containers. One container held a large and sharp scalpel. The other held an egg. It was about twice the size of a hen's egg. Jack saw all this just before the veil took on another shade of red and blurred completely his vision of the outside. But the final thickening did not keep him from seeing that Dr. Eumenes was staring down at him as if he were peering into a dusky burrow. And Jack could make out the eyes. They were large, much larger than they should have been at the speed with which Jack was receding. They were not the pale pink of an albino's. They were black from corner to corner and built of a dozen or so hexagons whose edges caught the light. They twinkled like jewels or the eyes of an enormous and evolved wasp. There you go. Good story or not? Mike, thank you so much. Again, do pop over to Mike's site, say hello. 
Next up is a little interview. Before we play Fabio's story, Edgar can't stand it. Got a little interview with Fabio. So I'm joined by the writer of Edgar Can't Stand It, Fabio Fernandez. Fabio, nice to have you on board Starship Sofa. Oh, the pleasure is all mine, Tony. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Now, where am I calling you from? I'm, call- I'm calling from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> this is the first time I've spoken I think I've spoken to anybody in Brazil, so that's, a- that's an amazing feat in itself. Fabio, it's lovely to have you on board. Tell us, Fabio... When did you start getting interested in science fiction and actually writing science fiction? Oh, uh, since I was I was uh, a teenager, in fact. Uh, I'm 44 years old, and I'm trying my hand at science fiction since I was 18 or 19 in Brazil. Uh, I first tried to, uh, to write science fiction in Portuguese, and now I'm finally uh, getting published in I'm writing a, a trilogy right now, and uh, I have a, approximately a, a two or a, and a half dozen stories uh, in, in magazines in Brazil and, and Portugal, and uh, just right now I'm starting to publish in, you, in the English market right now as well. What's the Brazilian or the South American market like for science fiction? Is it a growing trend, or is it is it a, like a small little niche market? Oh, I would say that it's a growing market right now because uh, until the the seventies and the eighties, all we had in Brazil was uh, Asimov, Ray Bradbury, and Arthur C. Clarke translations. Uh, uh, aside from a few Heinlein and Frank Herbert's books. We didn't have much uh, in science fiction tradition. Uh, we, we did also have uh, French novels in translation, and uh, we, we were still very uh, incipient in, in our own Brazilian uh, tra- tradition of writing. Then, uh, from the uh, late 80s on, we started writing science fiction for good. And now we have our uh, 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 big number of, of writers right now. Uh, right, uh, I think uh, we are developing a, a tradition of good writers now, but uh, it's still a niche thing. Mostly focused right now on cyberpunk and steampunk. Mostly steampunk, I would say. Am I right in thinking as well, Fabio? You're really you. You actually help to do the translations. You're doing translations from some of the works, you know, like William Gibson's and books like that. Yes, yes. In fact, uh, I'm. Uh, I uh, until uh, two years ago, I was a professional translator. I I uh, live. I lived out of it. I earned my bread of it. You could say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a translator, a uh, book translator, exclusively for almost 25 years. Now I'm translating. I'm translating exclusively the comics, comics for uh, the Vertigo, DC Vertigo line. But uh, until 2007, 2008, I was translating novels. Uh, I translated uh, Anthony Burgess' uh, Clockwork Orange, uh, William Gibson's uh, Neuromancer, and Pattern Recognition. And uh, recently I did uh, a new translation for Isaac Asimov's Foundation. And I've been uh, 
Now, right now, I, I'm not. I'm not going to do the translation, but I'm. I'm helping with the copy editing of uh, China Mevils uh, King Rat and Jeff Vandermeer's The Situation for a publishing house in São Paulo. Now, Fabio, we've got you here because we're going to play one of your stories as well. This one, Edgar can't stand it. Now, without giving too much away, tell us a little bit about this story. Sure. Uh, I was trying to to celebrate the bicentennial of Edgar Allan Poe. Poe uh, is an all-time favorite, of course. And I wanted to to do a romp, to do a, a, a pay a tribute, but a... a, a in the by the way of humor, uh, first I was I was uh, only uh, sketching something doing by by through a uh, flash fiction maybe. I was talking uh, with uh, Ray Hughes uh, in Scotland. I was trying to do a collaboration with him, but he couldn't. It happened that he already had too much in his hands, so I tried my hand alone, and uh, the story came up. So I tried it and, uh, and published it in, uh, first in a, in a New Zealand magazine uh, last year, in, the, in December. And uh, it is a story that I, I, I really enjoyed uh, writing because I tried to be light, to be funny. And uh, I'm not, I, I'm, I don't consider myself a very funny writer. But I think that in that story I, I achieved my purpose. Is... Is funny hard to do? <laughs> you know, it's like to try and get the comic element over. Is that a, a hard technique to do? Yes, yes. Uh, for, for me, at least, it's, it's very hard to come up with something funny. I was talking to Yetze de Vries, uh, who's the editor of that marvelous anthology, Shine, uh, by Solaris Books. And uh, we, were, we, were talking, uh, we were talking about uh, how difficult it is to write uh, an utopian story. But uh, an utopian, not in the Pollyanna sense, but uh, how difficult it is to write a well-balanced story about a wonderful future to live in, when you, where you can balance all the elements and uh, write about things that would, uh, a future where you would like to live. The same thing happens with humor. Uh, usually, of course, there's all kinds of humor. I love Monty Python's humor, for instance. And uh, it uh, illustrates every kind of, of uh, dark situations uh, that wouldn't, you wouldn't like to live in. But... Uh, I think that uh, you have to strike a balance, which is very hard. I think we, as humans, are, we, we, as a species, are a very pessimistic species. And it's very easy for us to think apocalyptically. And so it's very hard to come up with something funny. Well, Fabio, this is a, a fantastic story, and I'm so glad you let Starship Sofa get it sorted and get it narrated. Thank you so much for coming on Starship Sofa. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm rooting wildly for you at Hugo. Oh, yes. Fingers crossed. You know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Septem I think sometime, maybe September the 4th there. So fingers crossed. Thank you so much. Thank you.
The story is narrated by the one and only Matthew Sanborn Smith, who's got that mad podcast, Beware the Hairy Mango. Do pop over and subscribe to that. I will put a link onto that. Matt's been so kind to get a number of short stories narrated for Starship Sofa just of late. So, Matt, I can give you a big bear hug. Thank you so much. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. Edgar Can't Stand It by Fabio Fernandez. Originally published in Semaphore magazine. Read by Matthew Sanborn Smith. The day Edgar was resurrected, there wasn't anybody at the Grand Central Station to greet him. Prior to his exiting the revival chambers, the amanuensis at the information desk informed him that he, as any reborn person, was granted a guide by the resurrection protocols. Which protocols were those, alas, the bureaucrat was unable to explain to Edgar's heart's content. What he did manage to explain to Edgar, however, was that this guide would be summoned amongst a roster of other resurrected ones more experienced in the ways of the future, his future, their present. The amanuensis promptly explained in a strange metallic voice, even though Edgar, still more than a little dizzy from his long cold sleep, hadn't asked, on account of having been revived earlier. He or she should also come preferably closer to the reborn person's own time period, so to offer a less strange waking up experience. Unfortunately, it was not for Edgar to have such help. When he walked out of the chambers into the station proper, there wasn't even a concierge or a host or a maitre d' or whatever you were supposed to have at a time like that to welcome you into the world of the future, if indeed the world of the future it was. Still befuddled, Edgar wouldn't know anything about that. After all, the last thing he remembered was lying in agony in a hospital bed in the year of our Lord, 1849, slowly slipping into unconsciousness, and then oblivion. And now this... But how? Cryogenic, sir. The amanuensis at the information desk had explained to him in that most decidedly unbearable ringing metal tone. By Jove, I do know my Greek, young man, Edgar told the strange amanuensis, who didn't even blink at the repost. In fact, Edgar could be able to swear that he didn't see that strange man of pompated hair and all too composed features ever blink even once during the course of their conversation. What does cold have to do with all this? and he gestured to all the other dull chrome capsules, all apparently containing other specimens just like himself. The amanuensis didn't even flinch, and still didn't blink. The meaning of cold in the process of cryogenics is, sir, if I may venture forth an explanation of the process for you in a nutshell, that your body must have been preserved on ice as soon as it died so you could be revived at a later date, sir. Then Edgar knew there was something wrong. The prospect of being in the future shouldn't be a terrifying experience to him. After all, he had written a couple of stories of futurity in his time. But they were just that, stories, and satirical ones at that. He had never for a moment really cherished the thought of being revived in a future time, not even in Judgment Day. Thinking of which, how could his dead body have been preserved on ice in his time? If it was so hard even to find a cold beer in a saloon or even in a respectable bar, imagine whole dead bodies. A cold beer... He licked his lips, his throat was sore, and he was thirsty. My good man, he said to the amanuensis, who remained exactly at the same position as before, looking at him with no expression in his weird wax-like face. I suppose you don't have something for a man who has just recently underwent the rigors of resurrection. A nice cold drink? Suddenly the wall by the side of the amanuensis desk slid open, startling Edgar. It revealed another ambient, apparently a vaster one. If you just step outside to the station proper, sir, your assigned guide will be waiting for you and will be able to provide you further explanations, plus all the help you need. Next, please. Then Edgar turned and noticed for the first time that he was not alone in the large room. Two or three feet behind him, a line began to form. Several men and women, all seeming groggy, some of them with must hair, yawning and looking around warily. 
Edgar looked around as well and searched for a mirror in which to check his own looks, to no avail, alas. The amanuensis still gave him that same dead look, this time adding a gesture to the door. Sir, if you please. Edgar would have gladly put the young man in his place, but the people behind him were already starting to get restless. He could hear the shuffling and coughing, and the man just behind him, a tall, somber, and very thin man dressed in a black suit, was already giving him a very harsh look indeed. He decided he would fare better in a search for his assigned guide across the door. He found himself at the top of a stairway, looking down at the station. Before that day, Edgar had never believed in any religion or special creed in particular, and therefore never gave much thought to the notion of an afterlife. But if he was to believe in his senses now, then such a thing existed indeed, even if it was apparently more man-made than God created. For the Grand Central Station was a portentous structure, larger than the largest train station he ever visited in his life. It extended as far as the eye could see, and it seemed to be all covered in metal instead of wood or brick. People walked hurriedly to and fro, almost all of them in pairs, wearing all sorts of strange clothing. In vain he searched for some familiar face, some acquaintance of days past, or even, if it wasn't much to ask, be it to God himself or to the gods of science, his beloved wife Virginia. But alas, there was no one. Not even his supposed assigned guide. He looked around one more time, strangely mesmerized by that picture. Was all this station a mere scenery, a painted canvas, a trompe l'oeil? for the benefit of the newly arrived to the spiritual plane of existence, those who refused to let go of even the mere idea of the flesh, and so had to be slowly and cleverly cajoled out of it and brought to appreciate the bigger picture of a higher plane, a veritable Miltonian paradise. Or, he thought, feeling an awful burning sensation in the back of his throat, the slightest taste of metal, and the ever-present thirst, still the thirst starting to really plague him. Would it be hell instead? Edgar licked his lips with a furry tongue. Nobody had offered even a glass of water for him when he woke up. All he wanted right now was a good, honest-to-God drink, for his throat was very dry, and being thirsty was a truly scary prospect for him. He searched his clothes for money to purchase a drink. It was only then that he noticed that he was wearing his own clothes, not the mismatched ones with which he was found completely drunk in a ditch. Oh, best not to dwell on such dreary, sad thoughts. Before he was sent to the hospital, but his best Sunday clothes... Black shoes, trousers and jacket, a boiled white shirt, and a black vest, from where he fished out a silver turnip watch, shining as new. It was working. He looked around for a bench where he could have a seat, for he suddenly found himself strangely overwhelmed with exhaustion. Even though he was lying on his back when he was woken up from his slumber, he found none. He stroked his mustache, trying to hide as an affectation something that was more, in fact, a nervous twitch. The horrors. The delirium brought by the demon of the bottle, and yet... What could he do but crave for a drink? He was alone in the world, if that was the world, he reminded himself. Increasingly nervous, feeling the muscles on his legs, arms, and cheeks twitch uncontrollably as if pulled by an evil puppeteer, Edgar started pacing around the wide landing so as not to let his mind wander too much. The burning feeling in his throat was getting worse by the minute. Hell, the minutes were getting worse by the minute. His mouth was dry as he could never remember it to be in his entire life. He tried to keep his mind out of it. First he started measuring his pacing in iambic pentameters, but it was hard to change the rhythm of his steps to accommodate his rhyming. He also started to compose a poem in his mind. Suddenly he found out that he was craving as much for a pen as he was for a drink. During all that time, Edgar could not help looking up incessantly at his watch, several times almost tripping over his shoelaces, for in no moment he stopped thinking of verses, and many an idea for a story or two occurred to him as well. He waited for an entire hour, all this time seeing people exit the revival chambers and meeting other people just outside, their assigned guides, if he was to trust the amanuensis' words. 
but that was not for him. Edgar looked down again. The place was gargantuan. It was apparently a circular room of great diameter, the format of which he could only guess by looking up at the vaulted ceiling, not dissimilar in shape of pictures he had seen of the Sistine Chapel as a young man, without the Michelangelo paintings of Adam and God, of course, but with clouds, real clouds, white fluffy clouds moving idly against the cerulean blue of the huge arced space, and birds flying high above in the vastness of the ceiling. Dark birds. Ravens? Edgar noticed he was sweating profusely now. He picked up a handkerchief from the inner pocket of his jacket and dabbed his brow, face, and neck. God, he was thirsty. After a few more minutes, he mustered all his courage and decided it would amount for nothing to be perched atop the stairs to the revival chambers like a crow, or a raven, but he tried not to think of it, on a fence, and he descended the steep stairway to take a tour of the Grand Central Station by himself. He insisted in looking around for some place where he could buy a drink, or some heavenly fountain where some good angel, just in case he was wrong about that being the future, could guide him to. He found none. The station was a large, aired, and well-illuminated place, even though he had not yet seen, try as he might, any lamps or windows to speak of. There were a number of wooden benches painted a soft green, evenly spaced a few feet away from each other, with, most incredibly, no feet upon which to rest their weight. The same occurred with the signs positioned all over the station. They seemed to be floating, although still in study, as if fixed in place by invisible nails to an invisible wood post. Edgar tried to read the signs, but to little avail. They were written in a plethora of languages. He could understand the words separately, well enough to see that the signs were written in French, German, Arabic, Spanish, even English, for the love of God. The problem, however, was that the words made no sense at all to him. They looked like gibberish, to say the least. He spent quite some time trying to figure what the hell food court meant. "'It's no use trying to decipher these words, signore,' a feminine voice said behind his back. "'It's more complex a code than the one featured in your story, the gold bug, for instance.' Then Edgar turned and saw a big, imposing woman looking down at him. She was dressed as a lady from his own time. "'Signora Psyche Zenobia, at your service, as your assigned guide, signore Po,' she said, doing a quick curtsy. "'But y you don't exist,' he said, confused. "'I created you. Feel this, dear signore.' And she abruptly took his hand and put it over her heaving breast. "'Feel this, and tell me that this is not truly a telltale heart.' more so than a disembodied organ of your story. He indeed felt a very hearty heart beating under all the fabric of the dress. Self-conscious, he quickly pulled his hand from under her bosom. Then I suppose I should thank you, Signora Zenobia, he said, for the privilege of meeting one of my own creations made flesh. Not at all, sir, she said. I'm the one who must thank you for this opportunity. And more, I must apologize, because I wasn't at the revival chambers at the right time to receive you properly. A man of your stature, artistically speaking, of course, should have everything he wants at the time of his convenience. Speaking of which, my good signora... Yes? I wish I could have something to drink, miss... Signora, per piacere, dear signore Po. Yes, yes, I beg your pardon, signora Zenobia. It's the heat and the excitement, if you will. I would appreciate a whiskey, preferably. But bourbon would also be fine. Come to think of it, even a cold beer as well. She looked uncertain. I really don't think it's the best for you now, my dear Signore Po. Temperance, they say, is the best of remedies for those bestowed with the gift of resurrection. Who? Who what? They who, Signora Zenobia? Why, why, they who created our environment and recalled us to life, Signore Po. Our overlords, so to speak. And who are they? They are from our future, from a time so removed from our own, when the science is so advanced that they can resurrect people, my dear Signore Po, as if in Judgment Day. Imagine that. Edgar looked around. Suddenly he was very, very suspicious. 
He licked his dry lips, now drier than ever, drier than parchment, but he tried not to think of it right now. Right now he needed to assert himself of a rather simple fact. Was he dreaming? Or worse yet, dead, living in a private hell? Because everything was there, plain from to see, the raven, Zenobia, and now that he could see, even a palace bust on the top of a Corinthian column near the entrance to the revival chambers. But near the chambers, and that he hadn't noticed before, there was a bar. In fact, it seemed to be an English pub or a French bistro, he couldn't be sure. But there were tables on the sidewalk, and people were drinking. That was enough for him. But of one thing, he was damn sure. God, he was thirsty. Oh, I see you noticed one of our main restorative places, she said. There is a whole roll call of writers there, my dear Signore Poe, she said. Take, for instance, that fellow over there. She pointed to a middle-aged man with a salt-and-pepper beard who was emptying a pint of beer in one single gulp. He was drinking and fraternizing with several people in a big round table. Why, there was even a woman with them. Psyche Zenobia took a longer time to answer now. She opened her little purse and produced a big scroll. A scroll so big, in fact, that the purse could not have contained it all. She unrolled it and started to read. Hmm, let me see. According to the construction records, those are Ernest Hemingway, Dorothy Parker... Andre Breton and Thomas M. Dish. Construction records, he said half-distractedly. What are those construction records? And how come I've never heard of these fellows before? Please, my good Signora Zenobia, enlighten me. One thing at a time, Signore Poe, Zenobia said without lifting her eyes from the scroll. It is because they come from your future, evidently, she explained. They are contemporaries of our so-called overlords, then? Psyche Zenobia laughed at that suggestion. Her laugh had a distinctive metallic ring to it. This bothered Edgar deeply. Not at all, my dear, dear Signore Poe. Now imagine that. They come from just a century after you. This, and she made a sweeping gesture all over the place, is the work of men from much farther than merely the 20th century. And those over there, mind you, are just some of the writers with whom you probably would be most likely to get by. Over other parts around here, don't ask me why they didn't give it to me. I'm only your truly assigned guide. Seem to contain writers from the digital age, whatever that means. She looked back at the scroll, but this time the papyrus seemed to reflect the ambient light at her face, or to emit a light of its own. Hmm. Cory Doctorow, William Gibson, Bruce Sterling, Neil Stevenson, John Scalzi. Isn't Scalzi an Italian name? Funny name, is it not? It reminds me of some exotic opera character. And are they all here? Edgar asked, now starting to get more than a little tired and still thirsty. How big is this place? Oh, very big, in a sense, she said. Could you please take me there? He pointed to the bar pub bistro. Oh, certainly. How inconsiderate it of me, she said, and she started walking in the opposite direction. Frowning and annoyed because of his dry throat, Edgar reluctantly followed her. We're not going there, he pointed out to her. There where, she said. Now look here, my good Miss Zenobia. Signora, dear Signore Po, Signora, you made me a married woman after all. What I think, he said, ignoring her correction and looking over his shoulder to the bar, pub, bistro, and it's apparently very much contented patrons drinking all kinds of beverages, is that you are intent on deviating me of my purpose, and I cannot help wondering why. Is that so, Signore Poe? She turned suddenly and faced him with a reddening face, not so merry anymore. And what is your purpose? Pray tell. Edgar couldn't avoid a shudder. Now he was almost sure that he was in hell. Perhaps what our good Monsieur Poe really means, but finds himself unable to say, is what is the purpose of his captors? Isn't it so, Monsieur Poe? Hmm? Edgar turned and saw the short, nondescript man with a bowler hat too big for his head. Before he could say something, the little man stopped him, palm up front, and said, You need not say anything, bon Monsieur Poe, he said. I can provide all the explanations you certainly need, hmm? Scram, Finocchio, she cursed in Italian along with another stream of very improper words for a lady to say. 
I am the assigned guide to Signore Bo. Not anymore, since you are doing a very messy job of it, mademoiselle, the little man said. Now listen here, Dupin. You will not rob me of the glory of this moment. You appeared in three of his stories, while I only had two chances. And I got killed in the second story. As if to stress her point, she suddenly ripped free her high collar and showed a deep gash in her throat, badly held in place by a thick thread woven around her neck almost like a necklace. Edgar could only gaze in horror at the dark, thick red blood that started seeping from the gash. Then Zenobia's head started to wobble in her neck, threatening to fall down at any moment. Trembling, Edgar let go a cry of horror with that ghastly vision. Don't let that impress you, Monsieur Poe, the little man said, putting a calming hand in his arm. This is just a little show-off, and Zenobia here is putting on to frighten us. A sleight of hand, such as the stage magicians, the good ones, that is, there are so few of them, make to impress the feeble-minded. Are you a feeble-minded man, Monsieur Poe? Edgar Allan Poe was a nervous wreck. He backed away from the hellish vision, bumping into something behind him. He daren't look away from that veritable gorgon who still wobbled her head madly, and whose body started to spin almost like a Mussulman dervish to his utter horror. The whole vision was to him as something from the pits of hell, or from the demons of the bottle, he couldn't help thinking. But that could not be, for he had not put a drop of liquor on his lips for... For how long? God, he was so incredibly thirsty. Even a glass of cold water would be a blessing now. Evidently, the little man went on saying, This is more for your benefit than it is for mine, since I cannot possibly be scared away by anything. As a matter of fact, she also can't help being the way she is. It is the way we are wired, I guess. But I am quoting another writer. An unforgivable faux pas, n'est-ce pas, Monsieur Paul? The little man smiled and turned to him, extending his hand. You know my name already. Monsieur C. Auguste Dupin, Edgar said. Excellent, said the little man. Pronunciation? Parfait. You are truly a master, Monsieur Poe. Then Psyche Zenobia disappeared all of a sudden in a puff of smoke. Edgar screamed again. Zezia, said Dupin, patting his hand. That's all right now. She was recalled back to the guide depot. If the resurrection protocols see fit that she will come back again to guide you, then she will return. Meanwhile, I will be your new assigned guide. But what are you? Edgar asked Dupin. Certainly, sir, you are not real. Neither that Signora Psyche Zenobia. I created you both in my stories. However, since the two of you look and feel so real to me, it does not seem right that you are just figments of my imagination. And since I do feel very sober and intolerably thirsty, it does not seem to me that I am being plagued by some demon of the bottle, as the temperance societies used to call the natural state of those who lack sobriety. So pray tell, who are you really? Dupin sighed. Something much too complicated for you to understand in its entirety. For you had no words in your time to define. Us. Suffice to say, we are what you would call dramatis personae, false personalities conjured out of thin air, in this case out of molecules of oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, and carbon. Matter, simply. And what am I? What is this place, dear sir? Please tell me, am I in heaven or in hell? Then Monsieur Dupin did something he almost never did in his fictional life created by Edgar Allan Poe. He chuckled. Eh, hey, Monsieur Poe, you are everything but stupid, eh? But then you created me, so I suppose you are more intelligent even than me, after all. All it takes to deduce that is a measure of ratiocination. Yes, you guessed it right. You are not Edgar Allan Poe. You are not resurrected since many centuries have passed on Earth and no DNA survived of his body to create a reliable copy. Therefore, as you are not a person, you are not in heaven, neither in hell. You are a virtual construct 
living in an environment running in a nano server embedded into a crystal traveling at near light speed as part of an experience in exoplanet colonization. Dupin explained at last. For an instant, the briefest of instants, it must be said, Edgar forgot all thoughts of thirstiness, and his face showed puzzlement for not understanding the words the Frenchman was telling him. Not that the Frenchman was a man, despite the evidence of his senses. God, he was feeling as desperately dumb as his own Melanta Tata's Pundita. What a shame. But don't worry, Dupin went on. There will be plenty of time for you to get used to it. We will only get to 55 Concrete F in another... He made a show of looking at his own pocket watch, but now Edgar knew that, as with the impossibly big scroll held by Psyche Zenobia, whatever the little man happened to be seeing, it certainly wasn't the time of day. 37 years, real time. I have plenty of questions for you, Edgar, who now knew he wasn't Edgar, but was pretty sure he was still very thirsty indeed, no matter what he was being told, said. You may ask them now. Just one or two for now, if you please. The first is, would I be allowed to write? I feel a strange compulsion to do so. Dupin chuckled again. You must be jesting, Monsieur Paul. Of course you will be required to write. As a matter of fact, you will be sanctioned to write. You will be worshipped to write. In fact, that's exactly why you and all these good writers are here. To document things, to write about events in the self-same style of your former selves. Then, my good sir, after all these explanations you most kindly offered me, I suppose the alcoholic restrictions Senora Zenobia told me about before are nothing but a sham, a smoke curtain to dull the senses of the newly arrived. You are absolutely right, monsieur. There is no restriction whatsoever upon your debauchery. In spite of the fact that you may behave as if you feel something, the reality is that you don't really exist. None of us, in fact, really exist in the corporeal sense, and therefore cannot possibly be chained to the same burdens of the physical beings. Meaning that if I choose to drink all I want, I will not get drunk. No, I think in this respect you are wrong, monsieur Poe. The parameters assigned to your construct program you to feel as if you are drunk. However, you will soon recover without ever having the ill effects of it. Ergo, I can't suffer from the diseases and demons of the bottle. No, Monsieur Poe, never being human in the first place, I don't think that would ever be possible. Then you will most assuredly pardon me, Monsieur, for I must follow the calling of my muse. And then, enraptured by the urge of his programming, he rushed to the bar, pub, bistro, whatever. For he might not be the real Poe, maybe he might not even be real, but, for all he knew, he had a mouth and he must drink because he was really thirsty. There you go. That is it. That's the two stories. Philip Jose Farmers and Fabio Fernandez. Fabio, thank you so much. Just like to give a nod to Philip Jose Farmer up there in the big blue yonder. Which one did you prefer? There'll be a little poll at the front of the website. Do pop over, click that, and cast your vote. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A badly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 